The sun is setting on another day in beautiful sunny Santa Fe. It's time to kick back with a margarita and a big plate of enchiladas. I'm Sarah Rovang. And I'm John Golden. And you're listening to Sundowners, conversations about place, architecture, and global travel. Hi, Sarah. Hi, John. This is the inaugural episode of Sundowners and our first ever podcast to boot. I'm so excited and a bit nervous. <laughs> Me too. Well, we all know the first episode of any podcast isn't that great, so set your expectations low, listeners. So, for those among our listeners who may not know, what exactly is a sundowner? Well, a sundowner is a traditional end to the day on an African safari. So you're out looking at zebras, out looking at lions, and at the end of the day, your guide finds a nice hilltop where they can keep an eye on those aforementioned zebras and lions, and unloads a cooler full of nice drinks and a platter full of interesting different jerkies of beef and kudu and all other sorts of creatures. And the idea is just to gather, celebrate, and reflect at the end of the day. Well, in future episodes, we'll be focusing on the experience of a particular place. But for this pilot episode, we wanted to do something a little different. We wanted to share with you exactly how we came to be producing a podcast about global travel. So over the last couple months, I've been having roughly the same conversation over and over. So what we thought we'd do today is basically recreate that conversation with some guest vocals from Dean Rovang himself. So let's go now to that party conversation that I've had many times over. Hey, Sarah, I heard you won a thing and we are doing some traveling this year. Congrats. Thanks. Yeah, I think it will be pretty cool. What is this thing you won? It's called the H. Allen Brooks Traveling Fellowship. It's awarded by the Society of Architectural Historians, which is the professional association I belong to. It gives a postdoctoral scholar in the field of architectural history the opportunity to travel for a year following a completely self-determined itinerary. When do you leave? I'm leaving the country on July 16th of this year. Where are you going first? Johannesburg, South Africa. Where all else will you be going? After South Africa, I'm going to Japan, Chile, and Europe in that order. How long will you be staying in each place? About 50 days in the first three countries and then about six months in Europe. Are you traveling continuously or will you come back to the U.S. at some point? I'll be making a quick stop in New Mexico over the holidays to visit family and exchange my summer clothes for my winter gear. Is your husband coming with you? Yes. John will be with me for at least the first leg of the journey, that is South Africa, Japan, and Chile. Besides being an excellent traveling companion, John has gotten very good at driving on the left side of the road, which means we'll be able to explore a bit further afield in South Africa in a rental car. How does John have time to do that? Isn't he a physics postdoc or something? I'll get this one. I was a physics postdoc, but no more. I'm trying to figure out what's next for me after physics, and tagging along for this trip seemed like a really great opportunity see the world, and try to learn more about how I want to make it better. That's quite a selection of places. How did you pick those particular locations? I'm working on the public history of industrial heritage, 
basically how sites of industrialization from the 19th century to the present, such as mines, factories, mills, worker housing, etc., are being used and interpreted for a variety of audiences today. Okay, couldn't you hypothetically study industrialization pretty much anywhere in the world? Well, yeah, I, I knew I wanted to visit some parts of the world I'd never been to before, and I also wanted a mix of industrial sites that had been very developed for tourism and those that are currently undeveloped or in the very early stages of preservation and interpretation. Europe, particularly the western and northern regions, plus the UK, has many, many interpreted industrial sites and lots of sites that are being adaptively reused in clever and sustainable ways. There's this website even called the European Route of Industrial Heritage that maps thousands of sites across the continent. Sure, but what about the other places you're going? I got interested in Japan's industrial heritage because of an archipelago of sites that were added to the UNESCO World Heritage List in 2015, dating from the Meiji period. This addition has sparked some controversy around questions of if and how the role of foreign forced labor will be included in public interpretations. And then in Chile, I'm going to visit a series of ghost towns in the country's northern desert, which stands as testament to the boom and bust of nitrate mining in the region. While listed as UNESCO sites, these lack the same interpretive infrastructure as some of the more established industrial sites in Europe. South Africa, on the other hand, has a long and complicated colonial past and has seen the rise and fall of many industries such as forestry, diamond and gold mining, fishing, sea trade, and agriculture. After the abolishment of apartheid in 1994, South Africa began pivoting its economy toward tourism, developing former farmlands as wildlife preserves, and converting some of its mines into tourist attractions. One of the things I'm fascinated by in South Africa, Chile, and Japan is how the relationship between industrialization and imperialism played out in the built environment. These countries are united by having an architectural tradition with strong European influences, dating from different historical periods and taking shape in very divergent ways. Why did you pick this industrial heritage topic? I know a fair bit about the history of industrialization in the context of the United States and how that history intersects with the built environment. In fact, I wrote my dissertation on the architecture and landscapes of the Rural Electrification Administration, also known as the REA, a New Deal program that brought electricity to rural populations. Between 1936 and 1943, REA not only built thousands of miles of electric line in agrarian areas, it also created an architectural infrastructure to serve the needs of its users. This network of buildings included power plants, substations, and cooperative offices, sometimes containing multiple functions into a single structure. REA was very concerned about the communicative power of its buildings and strove to convey the modernizing, uplifting potential of electricity through the strategic development of modern architectural tropes. However, while power plants and office buildings are formally compelling and definitely an overlooked chapter in American modernism, what really captured my attention was how the agency told stories about its architecture to rural publics through print, photography, graphics, models, and community organizing. 
So it was less about the architecture itself and more about the way this organization was creating a narrative about the architecture. Exactly. And on top of that, when I started investigating whether these REA buildings still existed, I discovered that only a handful out of about 100 buildings were still intact. REA was so successful that most of its cooperatives needed new, bigger buildings at some point in the last 75 years. The historical and architectural value of the original buildings, examples of international-style modernism in the United States at a remarkably early date, went largely unremarked. I think this is an issue that plagues many industrial heritage sites here in the United States and elsewhere. Many industrial sites are not attractive in a conventional sense. They may be associated with economic systems that are at best outdated and at worst morally abhorrent. I think industrial sites are hard to deal with because oftentimes they expose uncomfortable truths about human history. That the advancement of one group of people has often come through the exploitation of another, or that the systematic and unsustainable harvest of natural resources can produce great wealth and enhance human welfare, at least in the short term. The preservation, interpretation, and calculated reuse of industrial sites forces us to examine these truths at a critical time in global history. How do you think your view of industrialization might be different from that of other scholars working on this topic? I would say that my background has given me a slightly different outlook on industrialization from other scholars that work on related topics. When we think of industrialization, most of us think about urbanization as well. We might envision people moving off farms, crowding into polluted Dickinsonian cities to seek more stable wages at factory jobs. However, the history of industry has always been inextricably linked to the rural landscape. As urban areas grew, burgeoning city populations relied increasingly on the efficient production of agricultural products in exurban agrarian regions. Beyond agriculture, mines, forests, and other sources of critical raw materials frequently existed far from cities. Thus, in addition to concentrating populations in urban areas, industrialization also brought the countryside and city into closer contact creating an infrastructure of trains, roads, telephone lines, etc., that in many ways shortened the distance, metaphorically and literally, between center and periphery. During my travels, I'll be looking beyond individual sites to understand the networks and relationships between multiple sites. In the context of South Africa, for instance, how were the gold mines of Johannesburg dependent on the forestry industry of the Northeast? How did the wine regions near Cape Town draw power and economic prestige from their proximity to a major global port? These are increasingly timely questions. Since World War II, global industry is becoming more and more decentralized. Massive distribution centers and the interstate highway trucking system in this country make it possible for many corporations to disperse their goods without having to use an existing city as a node. I am really interested in how industry, as a phenomenon of both peripheries and centers, rural and urban, plays out on a global scale. How did you find out about the sites you're going to in each country? Finding out about the sites I'm traveling to has been one of the most challenging and enjoyable aspects of the planning experience. Most of the planning I've done has really focused on South Africa, Chile, and Japan. I've had to use a multi-pronged approach for locating sites. 
Typically, I've started my searches on the UNESCO World Heritage List, looking for sites specifically tied to industry. As one might expect, the bulk of industrial UNESCO sites are currently clustered in Europe. Fortunately, UNESCO also maintains a list of tentative sites, sites listed by states as possible heritage sites for later nomination. The tentative list provides insight into current trends concerning the type of sites that are already seen by state actors to have historical merit and warrant preservation efforts. It has only really been in the last several decades that countries in every continent have started to nominate industrial sites for UNESCO status. So you start with UNESCO, and then what comes next? Usually my next step is to check with other tourist-oriented lists and sites. I've relied quite heavily on Atlas Obscura, which includes abandoned industrial sites among its taxonomy of strange and uncanny places. I've also used conventional guidebooks a surprising amount. Lonely Planet and Fodor's are pretty decent about including historical sites and factory tours. Between UNESCO and these guides, I can typically get a good sense of place, what various regions of a country are like in terms of geography, industry, and culture. From there, I start doing a slightly deeper dive, exploring the National Historic Places lists maintained by individual countries and starting to pull articles off JSTOR that might give more insight. Once I'm on the ground in each country, I expect I'll also get recommendations from locals and Airbnb hosts about other places off the beaten track. Are you going to be writing a book or something? That's a great question. Most postdoctoral fellowships in the humanities are usually oriented toward the development of a book manuscript. The Brooks is a rather unique fellowship in that the goal is intentionally not to produce a typical academic research project. The only quote-unquote deliverables required as part of the fellowship conditions are a monthly blog post and uploading 500 photographs to the Society of Architectural Historians Image Database, which is called Sahara. The idea is to give an emerging scholar time to observe and reflect on architecture, rather than having some preset scholarly goal. Rather than spending all day every day in an archive or library, the intention is to develop a substantial connection to place. Previous fellows have reported that it's nice to spend a bit of time in local libraries and archives. You can find historical photographs, architectural drawings, and other original materials related to the things you are seeing in the environment around you. But on a day-to-day -day basis, the goal is to be out exploring and experiencing architecture, soaking in a new place, and letting it shape and change you. Surely you'll be writing and producing more than just those monthly blog posts. Sure. I'll be writing a personal blog, for instance, in which I'll talk a bit more about the daily experience and minutia of travel, things like packing, gear, transportation, lodging, etc. I'm also planning to produce some posts about historical storytelling for the National Trust for Historic Preservation's Saving Places blog. Besides writing, how do you think you'll record your experiences on the road? Of course, I'll be taking a lot of photographs and sketching as I go. I'm going to try my hand at audio production. Plus, John and I are producing this podcast called Sundowners. What inspired you to explore audio as an aspect of industrial heritage? Well, my specific inspiration was this amazing piece I experienced at Mass MoCA a few years ago by the sound artist Stephen Vidiello. It was called All Those Vanished Engines, and it was installed in an old grain silo or manufacturing facility on site at the museum. 
The piece was an eerie evocation of the industrial noises from the past use life of that space. There was something haunting and evocative about those disembodied sounds clanging and echoing against the rusted sheet metal. I've never been a particularly auditory person. I think most of my intelligence is visual. After all, I'm trained to quickly identify art and buildings at a glance. I was never that good of a singer or a musician, though I spent many years trying. However, I am very sensitive to ambient sound. Living next to a busy street for three years taught me how pernicious an unrelenting environmental sound can be. So on my travels, I'll be doing ambient sound recording at each of my stops. What does an African gold mine sound like? What are the sonic characteristics of a Meiji-era dock on the coast of Japan? What do footsteps sound like in the halls of worker housing in England? All of this has to do with my enduring interest in architecture as something that is lived, spaces occupied by bodies performing different roles and tasks. It is not a purely visual medium, however much Instagram might try to convince us otherwise. Rather, architecture is a completely sensory experience. What are you most looking forward to? One of the aspects I'm most looking forward to of the Brooks Fellowship is having time to write and sketch without a deadline or agenda. I've been mostly teaching full-time for the past two years, and most of my time and energy has gone into course development. And I haven't kept up a sketching practice since I was an undergraduate in architecture school, although I always really enjoyed that aspect of the work. Also, flying business class from Cape Town to Tokyo and Tokyo to Santiago. Wait, wait. How are you affording business class? Well, John has gotten really savvy about using credit cards to get frequent flyer miles. What are you most nervous about? Leaving my dog for a full year. I will miss her furry face. But in all seriousness, in terms of my own experience in travels, I'm definitely a bit nervous to travel in places where English is not spoken universally. It's been a while since I've gotten out of the English-speaking world. My last major international trips have been to New Zealand and the UK, which are culturally and linguistically not that different from the United States. I'm not sure what it's going to be like living in southern Japan or northern Chile for weeks at a time, away from big metropolitan areas. But that's all part of the adventure. What do you think a typical day is going to be like? Well, John and I have already been thinking about that a lot. Last year, John and I took a lovely trip to Amsterdam to visit his parents who were living in the city on an academic sabbatical. Every day, we would wake up, eat breakfast as a family, and then work quietly until about 11 a.m. Once everyone was starting to get hungry for lunch, we would all bail out and head into town for an afternoon of museums. After the museums closed, we would find a homey bar with good music to chat about what we'd just seen and read for a few hours before dinner. The whole pace felt just so right for actually appreciating what we'd seen that I'm hoping to recreate something similar on this trip. John and I are also creating a series of exercise routines that can be done in small spaces or local parks to start the day. Where will you be staying? Mostly in Airbnbs. We found that Airbnb is a great way to make local connections, score recommendations, and get a better sense of place than staying in a chain hotel. It also tends to be cheaper, depending on where you're going. However, some towns in more rural areas don't have quite the well-developed Airbnb communities common in bigger cities. In those cases, we'll stay in some local hotels and guest houses. We've also found good details on a variety of sites, such as Hotwire, Agoda, Hotels.com, and Booking.com, to supplement our Airbnb stays. 
I've even found great places on Hostel World, which now has some more upmarket offerings. I don't see us staying at a lot of traditional bed and breakfasts. Being forced to make small talk first thing in the morning over a heavy meal of eggs and meats is not really our thing. What kind of gear are you taking? I'm trying to keep my gear relatively minimal, though traveling continuously for months at a time does require a certain amount of forethought. As far as technology goes, I'm opting for an iPad Pro instead of a full laptop. For a camera, I'm bringing a Nikon DSLR with a wide-angle lens and a telephoto lens. I also have a Zoom H4n recorder that I'll be using for sound mapping and doing this podcast. Are you carrying on, or will you be checking bags? We will be fitting all of our gear into carry-ons. We really have been impressed by the Tortuga Outbreaker backpack, which is more like a suitcase mounted onto a backpack than it is a rugged outdoor backpacking type bag. All of our stuff will fit into two Outbreakers, including smaller bags for daily use once we get settled into a new location. Well, this sounds like a great opportunity. How can I follow your travels? All of the blogs and materials I'll be creating are linked to from my website, sarahrovang.com brooks. I'm also on Instagram at, at Sarah Modern. That's modern with an E at the end. And you know, I think I'm going to freshen my drink, but it was great chatting with you. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. Join us next week for our first episode on the road from Johannesburg, South Africa. Hopefully we'll be better editors by then. Catch you next time. Bye.